This is Update One, the podcast of the National Press Club in Washington, D.C. Update One provides a forum for listeners to learn about national and international stories, focusing on journalism and communication issues, news, and politics. Now, the latest edition of Update One. This is the National Press Club Update One. My name is Lincoln Smith, podcast committee member of the National Press Club, and we are joined by Mr. Irv Chapman. Irv, with a broadcast journalism career now spanning over 50 years, can you briefly highlight your career and lifelong passion of reporting the news? Well, it started when I was a child and we listened at home to the CBS World News Roundup at 8 in the morning, 6 in the evening, 15 minutes with the correspondents who'd been hired by Edward R. Murrow. And after that, in the fifth grade, uh, we had the current events class and learned how to write the news in newspaper style. In junior high school, we had a journalism class and a student newspaper which I was the editor and went on to do similar in high school and in college. My first job in commercial broadcasting was with a startup originated by a New York legendary commentator named George Hamilton Combs, who had this idea that local radio stations would be abandoning the networks and wanted a source of news spots uh, to integrate into local newscasts. And they sent me to Washington to start a bureau from scratch, which I did. And that lasted uh, three wonderful years. I appointed myself White House correspondent when John F. Kennedy was in the White House and attending his news conferences is memorable. But after three years, I heard that ABC Radio was starting a news feature program. And they hired seven guys and one woman to run the show, including some of my colleagues at the time, Charles Osgood and uh, Ted Koppel, boy wonder age 23 at the time. And that started 22 years with ABC News, during which I was also the network's correspondent in Moscow, traveled 20,000 miles through the Soviet Union doing television and radio stories, and then went to Tokyo and covered news from Korea to Australia to Pakistan all over the Far East. After that, after an interval, I was hired by CNN as Washington Business News Correspondent. It was a six-year stint. And then Bloomberg came along and hired me as their first uh, Bloomberg Television Correspondent in Washington. That was 1997. And uh, while other news media have shriveled, Bloomberg, with reporters and analysts in more than 120 countries, is going strong, and so am I. Our involvement in Vietnam er, lasted from 1955 to 1975. That's some 20 years. And U.S. involvement in Afghanistan and other conflicts around the world uh, started in 2001. That would be Afghanistan. And it's now lasted some 18 years. If you were to briefly compare and contrast the broadcast media coverage of both conflicts and other conflicts that are continuing, such as in Syria. What might be some of your comparisons? Well, in Vietnam, it was wide open to coverage. Any correspondent uh, could go up to the Air Force Base at Tan Sanun outside Saigon and uh, hitch a ride with any helicopter pilot who had space. 
uh, for that correspondent, uh, it was television, the camera crew as well, and off you went. And uh, you could uh, try to find where the action was on any given day and then have to hitch your ride on the way back. And depending on who you were and what your outlook was and how experienced the correspondent you were covering wars, uh, you would make your way to a battalion headquarters. Uh, the no-no seemed to be you don't go fighting with a company-level group of uh, soldiers because that could be exceedingly dangerous. And yet a CBS correspondent named John Lawrence did exactly that and produced a program uh, based on uh, life with Company C, Charlie Company. And so the Vietnam War coverage uh, was wide-ranging, uh, and uh, there were uh, people who would talk to reporters every step of the way. Uh, now, when uh, the Iraq War started, uh, that was planned by the United States government. Uh, tactics of fighting the war were planned. The shock and awe air campaign started and so on. And so the uh, Pentagon uh, had time to decide how to invite correspondents for news media to cover the war and came up with a system of embedding correspondence with military units. Now, this meant the correspondent in question or the camera crew in question had no uh, concern about how to get to where the action was, but also it meant, of course, that the commanders in the field could determine what it was uh, that they were willing to have covered. So it, it worked both ways. Other wars were kind of do what you can do. Uh, Syria has been exceedingly dangerous. Uh, an occasional reporter has uh, uh, run across the border with uh, either uh, at the invitation of the government if they were doing well, or the invitation of insurgents if they control a given area that they were willing to, to expose to show what a bad guys the government was. So uh, times have changed, uh, but also today, of course, with the internet, uh, any local with a smartphone can take video and upload it, and it can become part of a report compiled by any network in uh, New York or in London or wherever. In comparing the do-what-you-can-do with the embed of today, Irv, in your heart of hearts, which do you prefer? Well, I'm not a war correspondent, so I have, in fact, I went to Vietnam at a time after President Nixon had announced uh, that the war would be Vietnamized, turned over to the Vietnamese, that the U.S. mission would be just training. Uh, as a result of that, uh, the bad guys uh, just melted away. There were no, nowhere to be seen. They were just biding their time. I remember covering a helicopter insertion mission in which it looked like a huge array of American helicopters were taking Vietnamese troops somewhere out in the field. And I was sitting in the middle of the helipad. And it occurred to me later that if the war were actually going full tilt, that would have been a very dangerous place to sit. But it wasn't. And in fact, I came to Vietnam not from Washington or New York, uh, but from Moscow. And uh, so I sort of uh, had a different approach in that I had a fair notion of what the place would be like if communist dictatorship rolled over it. So for me, the question was not who had the white hats and who had the black hats but whether it was in the power of the United States with its vast military establishment to work its will in this environment where the other guys on their side had nationalism, this fervor to kick the foreigners out, and also, as it, we now know, very skillful generals on the side of uh, the North Vietnamese 
and their, their main general turned out to be the power behind the throne, and Ho Chi Minh was uh, something of a figurehead. Irv, do you think that if the embed program did exist during the Vietnam conflict, that you and other correspondents could have done some of the stories that were done? Probably not, um, but that's not relevant. The stories were done, and uh, they had an enormous impact in the United States, uh, particularly, obviously, the, the television stories. The uh, U.S. Army Department of uh, Military History did a study of the Vietnam War coverage in the context of uh, the media through wars of our history and questioned whether the media had this enormous influence in uh, the loss of public support for the war as it dragged on and on and on. Those who supported the war, those who opposed the war, uh, relied on the same media and took from it the evidence that they wanted to support their point of view. But the conclusion of the military historian is that what turned public opinion against the war was casualties. And uh, the same had happened, uh, they concluded it in the Korean War, that uh, the U.S. side, under General Westmoreland, judged success by body count, the number of North Vietnamese whose bodies they found on the battlefield after a battle. The North Vietnamese obviously didn't publicize what they were doing, but it became uh, evident that as the casualties, the United States killed in action, uh, rose from 10,000 to 20 to 30 to 40 to all those names on the Vietnam Wall here in Washington, that that withheld public support. And also, when uh, Nixon ended the draft, when the army was no longer composed of conscripts, that also diffused a lot of the opposition in the United States. Can it be said, Irv, that you were a witness to the reluctance of the Philippine government to be involved with the Vietnam conflict? unlike in previous years with World War II or other conflicts? Well, the Philippine government marched to the sound of its own, its own drum. I think that one main thing that you can talk about uh, in terms of uh, refugee resettlement is uh, the fact that uh, throughout the Cold War, the United States welcomed refugees from communist countries, Hungary, Poland, uh, the Czech Republic, uh, then Vietnam, uh, and then uh, Russians who were able to get out of Russia, the Jews. Uh, today, we're far less hospitable. And in fact, the uh, uh, translators who worked for uh, the United States uh, military uh, in Iraq uh, and in Afghanistan, uh, their military sponsors want to get them out and into the United States. And our refugee policy at the moment is not very hospitable. And getting back to your question about the middle class, Afghanistan, the middle class is, is threatened by the Taliban all over again. And that is particularly uh, with regard to women, because one of the factors of American uh, and other foreign influences in Afghanistan has been uh, taking steps toward the equality of women, and that means putting them in school for the first time in the country's history, and they are have, have reason to worry, uh, and they, by all accounts, are worried. Your time in Vietnam, Irv, did include covering Vice President Hubert Humphrey's tour. What was the level of personal freedom in Vietnam at that time, and how might that level of personal freedom of then compared to that of 
such nations as Afghanistan, Syria, Iraq today in 2019? Well, as far as uh, personal freedom in Vietnam under the, when the American war was going on, uh, it was quite substantial. There were uh, 40 newspapers published in Saigon. Uh, there was an election while I was there uh, in which it was widely believed the election was being rigged in favor of the two generals who ran the place. And 39 of the 40 newspapers complained in their editorials that the election was rigged. Uh, the 40th was a government mouthpiece. Uh, I could go to the University of Saigon and talk to students and get their opinions. And it sounded a lot as though as I was talking to students in Berkeley or New York. Uh, they were very freewheeling. Well, right now, bloggers in Vietnam go to jail. Uh, and in uh, uh, Iraq was never a free country under Saddam Hussein and, uh, and so on. So uh, there's no comparison. Legendary war cameraman Yasutun Tony Hiroshiki chronicles the story of his decades in the front line of the Vietnam War. And that's in his book, on the front lines of the television war, a legendary war cameraman in Vietnam. Former ABC Nightline anchor Ted Koppel says of Hiroshiki, quote, his soaring video, often acquired only at great personal risk, gave wings to even the most mundane narration. In the book, Hiroshiki cites a story you did with him on the mountain people in Vietnam. And the name of the story was Village Loyalty. And one of the lines in the story says, quote, it's another sad example of how war and politics are the cause of the destruction of an ancient culture, end quote. Irv, going over to today in 2019, do you have any further reflections on your story? And if so, what are your reflections? Well, the war is destructive, period, exclamation point. And in Vietnam, uh, the... Uh, the uh, tactic of uh, moving people to what they called strategic hamlets uh, that would prevent infiltration from the North Vietnamese affected, obviously, these uh, traditional people as well. Um, and the same is, uh, has been true throughout the history of warfare and the destruction of the, the old towns of, of Europe during World War II. But it isn't just uh, warfare, because in Afghanistan, uh, the uh, Taliban... Uh, after they had gained control and there was no war going on, uh, they destroyed two huge statues of Buddha uh, in a town halfway between uh, Kabul and, and the uh, Khyber Pass. Uh, these were statues that were something like 120 feet tall that had been there for 1,500 years. Uh, and uh, uh, we we've, we've saw them on our tourist visit to Afghanistan uh, uh, years ago uh, before that happened and stood there, had our picture taken uh, five and a half feet of us and, and uh, 120 feet of Buddha, and they're no more. They trained artillery on them, and that wasn't enough. And so they uh, sent sappers with uh, explosives to rip them apart, and they're gone. Uh, and now we're negotiating with the Taliban all over again uh, so that the U.S. can evacuate. Uh, and uh, uh, who knows uh, what the eventual result will be if and when these, uh, this evacuation takes place. And to your thought, Irv, while both protracted in nature, uh, 
I should say, while all of these have been protracted in nature, the Afghanistan, Iraq, and Syrian conflicts, they remain far different than that of Vietnam. Certainly in terms of location, culture, and history, these differences noted, do you believe that this said the same story you did in Vietnam, such as village loyalty, has repeated itself? And has war once again destroyed an ancient culture, this time in these other three most recent conflicts, or not? Well, war has been very destructive in these places. Uh, in in uh, Syria, for example, uh, where I have never been, uh, there's the town of Palmyra, which had numerous historic sites and has been practically leveled by all accounts. Uh, certainly, uh, these countries also uh, are very tribal in that uh, the, uh, there are people who've been living there unto the generations uh, and uh, have their own uh, clusters of uh, family and, and uh, tribe and, and religion and what have you. And uh, they have been harshly dealt with uh, by whoever is uh, running the neighborhood now with, uh, with guns in their hands. Uh, so uh, that's another thing that, that uh, I'm sure you learned as well, uh, uh, living and working abroad, uh, that so many of these countries, you know, we have 200-odd uh, years of history here, or 400 years if you uh, want to count the original colonization. Uh, and if you go to the old town in Alexandria, Virginia, it's 200-odd years old. If you go to an old town in Europe, uh, the, the foundation for the cathedral was laid in the uh, 12th century. We're talking many thousands of years. We're talking about even more thousands of years if you're referring to China, Japan, Egypt, uh, African countries, and so on. And uh, if policymakers are not conversant with the history, traditions, mindsets uh, in these various places, uh, policy will go astray. Final question, Irv, uh, to our discussion. Uh, amidst the ongoing conflicts we have around the world today, and we've discussed three, uh, and that would be Afghan, uh, Iraq, and Syria, do you think the United States has learned anything from the lessons of the Vietnam War or not? Well, the hard truth is that uh, when George W. Bush was president, uh, his top officials, Dick Cheney and Don Rumsfeld, had been in public office during the Vietnam War. And if the lesson of the Vietnam War is that no matter how righteous your cause, if the other guys have a belief system, a motivation, uh, and the wherewithal, the Vietnamese having uh, as it turned out, uh, all the tanks they needed to invade Saigon sent by Mother Russia, uh, then the good guys will not necessarily triumph. And that lesson was not applied to Iraq. Obviously, Saddam Hussein was one of the world's bad guys, but he was entrenched. And the result, uh, after overthrowing him, was not necessarily to our liking. And as you said, uh, we're still there. Mr. Irv Chapman legendary broadcast news journalist. Thank you for joining us on another edition of Update One.
Update One is a production of the National Press Club's Broadcast Podcast Committee. You can comment on this podcast or any episode of Update One by sending an email to Update One Podcast. That's update the number one podcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening to Update One.